morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt, that music. It's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, sponsored by Hillsdale College. They have been members of our show lineup for, I don't know, 10 years now. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, has always joined me most of these weeks, sometimes with a colleague, as is today, and I am, I'm pleased to welcome them both back. Good morning, Dr. Arn. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm Well, I've, I've got lots of Lots of different issues to cover. Dr. Kenneth Calvert is his colleague today. Professor Calvert, how are you? Oh, it's just you, Larry. I thought Ken Calvert was joining us today. I did, too. Well, maybe he'll show up at some point. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, uh, because we will, we will call and see if that's the case. I wanted to ask your thoughts on the impeachment proceedings of this week and whether or not it is constitutional for the Senate to try a president who has left office. Mm. Well, there's so first of all, there's arguments on both sides, and they're pretty ably made in the Washington Post lately. In a in an article you sent me by Mike Ludig, great the great retired judge, and another by Lawrence Tribe. And uh, uh, first, I'll tell you what I think, and then I'll tell you the arguments. Uh, what I think is impeachment is a special process, especially as regards the chief executive, because there's a problem to solve. Uh, in Britain, the, the, for, forever, the sovereign was the king and the chief executive, and there wasn't really any method to remove him. So they, you know, in the in, in Charles the first, they cut off his head, yeah. but they they weren't really ever able to establish a British law that would let them do that, um, and and that's because the executive is in charge of prosecutions. So how do you prosecute the executive? And it's sensitive because any way you prosecute him, anybody who has the power to prosecute him could conceivably take over the executive. And in our country, the executive is elected, and that would mean thwarting the will of the people. So they did a brilliant thing. They contrived, uh, they, they contrived that uh, the two political branches would take on a somewhat judicial function, and one would accuse him and the other and prosecute him and the other would try him and that would mean then that there would have to be a sort of consensus in the nation uh... of the political forces in the nation and it would also however operate under some rules of law they would present evidence and have cross-examination so that's what they did and that's uh... that's worked really well uh... uh... the point is what about a private citizen, which is what Donald Trump will be in a few days. And so I, the reason I think a private citizen cannot be prosecuted is because if you read, you know, there are six mentions of impeachment in the Constitution, and what is it, two of them are in, they're, uh, yeah, two, they're, uh, three of them are in Article 1, and, and uh, two of them are in Article 2, and one of them is in Article 3. So the the mentions the the second one is the most interesting one. The Senate shall have the the sole power to try impeachments. Uh, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, and the con- conjunction disqualify disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Uh, so. It's a it's a it's a, a compound sentence. There are two co-equal clauses: removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any other office of honor. The question really is whether you think those two things 
can be done separately. Uh, the reason I think not is because the that immediate sentence goes on to say, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, and judgment, and punishment according to law. So in other words, it's saying after you're not uh, president anymore, you can be tried in an ordinary court like an ordinary citizen. And that looks to me like they're making a sharp distinction between the two. And because the procedure is so elaborate and so uh, refined in taking advantage of the separation of powers in the bicameral legislature, I, I don't think it's meant to apply to private citizens. Uh, I'll also say that uh, bills of attainder are expressly forbidden in the Constitution. What bills of attainder are is the legislature passing a law that says you're guilty of a crime. And that happened a lot in England, and they rebelled against that. Now, that looks conclusive to me, and that's more or less what Mike Ludig argues. But I will add, uh, uh, Lawrence Tribe, uh, there are three cases in American history where somebody, a, a federal official, was impeached after he left office and barred from future office. And, and, uh, and then the, he quotes John Adams to say, and I haven't had time to look up to see, make sure the quote is accurate, let's say it is, um, to say that he is liable to impeachment for every act he did in office while there's breath in his body. So that's, you know, first of all, that means there's precedence, and second of all, that means they've got a founder saying so. Now, and Judge Ludig added that those precedents are legislative precedents that uh, would have no binding effect on a court considering this. Others have argued the court will never interfere with the political question of whether or not the Senate could proceed to a trial. I believe President Trump will move to enjoin any impeachment from his home in Florida, removing the case from the District of Columbia Circuit, and that they will not refuse because of the Bill of Attainder language. I mean, this is very dangerous stuff that we're talking about if yeah. the country gets involved in this. Yeah, now as a, as a matter of merit, uh, I very much think this is bad. And uh, why is it bad? Well, first of all, I think that uh, Donald Trump uh, did all the right things in this election, except about three or four weeks too long. Uh, I think once the state legislatures had decided, it was decided. And the Constitution emphatically puts the power over this in their hands. And then you could legitimately urge the state legislatures to change their mind, which is more or less what the president was calling but that was a forlorn hope, in my opinion. For one thing, I know some of the legislators in Michigan didn't think they were going to do that. So I think he made mistakes. But did he send them down there to riot and break into the Capitol, which a small minority of them did, but, you know, what, three or 400 people, I think. And those people are being prosecuted, and they should be. And I regret the loss of the life of the woman who was shot. She's an Air Force veteran. But it's also true she was climbing through a broken window into the Capitol, and that's a crime. And we regret the loss of life completely of the police officer without oh, yeah. qualification who was murdered. That's right. And uh, that's, you know, so that's a bad thing. And, and uh, I thought that there should have been prosecutions much more than there were in the riots in the summer, which, in fact, were joined by public officials. Uh, the protests and the riots were going on sometimes at the same time. And I thought that was shameful. Well, I think this is shameful, too. 
And uh, but I, I, you know, I mean, the explicit words that Trump said was nonviolently, peaceably when he uh, encouraged the crowd to go down toward the Capitol. And of course, they have a right to do that. And they, you know, if they hadn't crossed the police barrier, if some had not crossed the police barrier, the rest of them would not have been guilty of any crime. So well, let or, me or add, to conclude this, if you were a member of the Senate and they call you up and say, Dr. Arn, what should I do? My advice has been do not attend the proceedings, but do attend the vote and vote against conviction, but make clear that you believe these proceedings are unconstitutional. What would your advice be? Yeah, very much that. And see, let me let me just mention that as memory serves, and I haven't looked it up yet, in his first press conference after he was elected president, you know, Trump's people, you know, where the Republicans and the Democrats both have their vices, and Trump's people wanted to prosecute Hillary. And in his first press conference, he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. You know, and that's that's the right attitude, right? Because if the consequences of politics, if politics are criminalized, then you're on your way to the politics of the of the Politburo, which, by the way, after they shot Berea, arrested him in a cabinet meeting and took him outside and shot him, then they made a resolution they wouldn't do that anymore. And they didn't because they thought, wow, this is bad for all of us. So the best thing to do would be to bind up the wounds of the nation. And, uh, and you know, since I don't think Donald Trump committed a crime, although I think he made a misjudgment, and, you know, an important misjudgment, um, uh, then, then, yeah, I wouldn't do this. And uh, uh, and you know if they if it's this if it's that kind of Congress with no generosity of spirit in it and also torturing the law to get this done that would just be a shame. When we come back, Dr. Kenneth Calvert will join us, and we will revert to our study of the American founding. Indeed, before the American founding, we will revert to our study of the American settlement and what goods they brought with them, both to Virginia and Massachusetts in the way of law and aspiration. Stay tuned, America. There's an awful lot that happens in D.C. that you never hear about, unless you're here when Hugh Hewitt returns. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue has begun, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. All of our Hillsdale Dialogues, going back now almost a decade, are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. Dr. Ron and I concluded at the beginning of the year, actually late last year, that we would revisit the settlement of America and the documents that enshrine our governing principles and helping us in that process is Dr. Kenneth Calvert, who's a professor of ancient history, but he also teaches not only ancient Christian studies, but he teaches a great deal about the early colonial period. Dr. Calvert, welcome back. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now, I'm going to turn this this four to five minute segment over to you because Larry and I took the first segment if you could recap for us the sort of chronology of America's early founding, it starts in Virginia, it spreads to Massachusetts, and in both places there is the rule of law. You have the floor, Professor. <laughs> right. Yeah, the fact that they come and establish a rule of law is very important. 
What is, what is important to understand also is that each of these colonies had very much their own culture. Um, Virginia, uh, to a great extent, uh, historians talk about Virginia as England transplanted, um, much more uh, in line with what they had left at home. Um, however, up north among the Puritans, um, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly different culture, a slightly different approach. When you look at their documents, for instance, uh, the, the, uh, the Mayflower Compact or the Salem Covenant, you have throughout it um, very interesting language. Um, almost every item within these documents begins with we, we covenant, we promise, we give ourselves, uh, we whose names are underwritten, that kind of language. It's a very, very interesting approach because it's not prescriptive as, as what you might find in Virginia or, or uh, even later on in Maryland. Um, it is uh, a, a compact, a covenant that these men are entering into willingly. And what are they doing? What are, what are they hoping to establish there within the Puritan colonies? Well, they're, they're hoping to establish a Christian society, a godly society, that is going to be um, a city on the hill. That's you know, John Winthrop uses that phrase very early on. An example to England in particular, but to the rest of Christendom, of how um, Christians might live and what kind of society, what kind of godly society might be established. And particularly on the, on, on the foundations, the idea that um, this is something they enter into willingly. And uh, it's governed um, very much, um, as, as much as they are able, based upon uh, you know, biblical ideas of natural rights and uh, the rights of the, of, of the free man. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting experiment. It, of course, it has its problems. There are issues. But really at the foundation of it is this idea that the family, ruled by um, the fathers, uh, works in coordination with other families in community. Uh, the church is very much at the center of it all as a place of worship, but also as a place of political activity, a place of, of judicial activity. And um, again, it has its ups and downs, but it is uh, a very, very interesting attempt to establish, I think, what we might call um, a Christian republic in uh, the new world in these new, among these new colonies, um, uh, there's there have been a number of articles written recently uh, comparing uh, 1620 uh, and the establishment of this Christian Republic with the 1619 project and the focus on slavery as uh, you know the main issue and the main theme within American culture. But I think 1620, and uh, many have, have argued this, I think is, is probably the better uh, way to approach all of this. Uh, the, 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 the pilgrims who were separatists and the Puritans who followed them, uh, not quite separatists, but still wanting to establish this city on the hill, uh, had very, very deep reservations and convictions against slavery, for instance. And when we yeah. come back, we're going to cover the Salem Covenant, and we're going to talk about the abolitionist movement, and it began in New England. By the way, the American Heritage of Reader, which I'm holding up, is the key Hillsdale document 
for uh, the classical schools. I learned this week that there's a new uh, uh, classical school in Orange County. The Orange You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue, sponsored by Hillsdale College, which you hear each week at this time, is underway. All things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. I mentioned a great uh, classical school in Orange County, which is uh, the Orange County Classical Academy. It is one of the Hillsdale Classical Academies uh, inspired by Hillsdale which teach the founding, and uh, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is joined by Dr. Kenneth Calvert. Dr. Calvert, when we went to break, we were about to talk about the founding up north. Uh, we, we discussed the laws of Virginia three weeks ago. People can go and listen to that. That's England transplanted. What is it that the pilgrims had in mind, and when did the pilgrims become the Puritans, and how did they diverge, and when does the Salem Compact come into this conversation? Well, I think it's important to understand that uh, James I of England was really attempting to create a culture built around the Church of England um, and English Christianity. Uh, and, and what happened in the midst of that was that you have two ends of a spectrum kind of cut off from, from inclusion in that. One are the Puritans on one side, the other are those who choose to, to hang on to their Catholicism. And on the Protestant side, the Puritans and the Pilgrims um, were ones who really struggled with this idea of of being, you know, essentially forced into into the Church of England. Uh, the Pilgrims, being separatists, left first went to the Netherlands and um, realized that their children were becoming Dutch more than they <laughs> and leaving behind English tradition. And so, what's very interesting about the Pilgrims and then the Puritans that followed them is that they were very much, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, honoring uh, the king uh, and, and, and parliament of England, uh, but they did struggle with the religious um, uh, and church uh, structure that had been established. And so the pilgrims ended up coming to uh, the northern colonies, uh, and the pilgrims uh, being much more separatist, much more, distinct in their attempt to, to, to be separate from the Church of England. The Puritans um, who came after them, and again, there's a lot of discussion as how one really makes a distinguish, you know, distinguishes between these two groups, but the Puritans, um, many of them were from London, many of them were involved in commerce and business, many of them had been trained at uh, Cambridge University. Cambridge University at, in that, that, at that time tended to be the uh, kind of intellectual center of Puritanism. And what they wanted to do in this new colony or new colonies in the north was to really establish a Christian republic um, still under um, you know, the king and parliament of England, but to establish a kind of government, again, as I said earlier, that might be a, uh, a, you know, a model for how Christians would live with and among 
one another. Um, they established the first university uh, in the colonies. Harvard University uh, established, you know, in the name of John Harvard, who was uh, a Puritan from Stratford-upon-Avon. Uh, and in 1636, this this college became a university, was established to train pastors and to give a high level of education uh, to the leadership of the, the Puritan communities. And Harvard College is located in Cambridge, which That's was named for Cambridge University, uh, right. from which the Puritans came in large numbers, correct? Right, right. Quite often, you know, there are all kinds of stereotypes that are thrown around about the Puritans, one of them being that, you know, being uh, such staunch religious uh, people, you know, staunch Christians, that they were not intellectually well-informed, but it's, it's actually quite the opposite. They, they, were, they, were, they were a very intelligent and learned community, Greek, uh, Hebrew, the languages of Scripture, Latin also studied. And this tradition you can find, you know, as, as deep into uh, New England history as, as John and Abigail Adams. They both had studied deeply uh, in those languages as now, well. Now, so, Professor, is it yeah. fair to say, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, that the Enlightenment roosts more deeply in the Virginia soil than it does in the Massachusetts soil? I think, I think you can say that. I think the Enlightenment is is kind of going on concurrent with all of this and so you you have to be careful about how you use it because it does begin to become much more um prevalent and have its 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 influences in the later 1600s as these colonies begin to mature uh you begin to see more enlightenment influence yeah certainly uh, you know enlightenment influence in virginia for instance with jefferson uh, but also uh, up north, you know, uh, Franklin was from Boston. Well, and he but, was from um, uh, among the Pilgrims and from now, the Puritan community. Yeah, yeah. Now, in 1629, the Salem Covenant is adopted by the in the records of the First Church in Salem, Massachusetts. The entirety of which reads, "We covenant with the Lord and one with another, and do bind ourselves in the presence of God to walk together in all His ways, according." as he is pleased to reveal himself unto us in his blessed word of truth. That covenant is enlarged in 1636. And I'm not going to read that because it, it has um, many, uh, nine different provisions. How do those covenants, infrequently mentioned, rarely taught, new to me in large part, the enlarged covenant, how, do that, how does that figure into the early American story, Professor? Well, I think that the idea that, um, in fact, in all of these colonies, Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, all throughout them, a, a Christian conviction um, is present everywhere. The, the question is, you know, what brand of Christian uh, does it take? Uh, again, in Virginia Church of England, uh, Pennsylvania is going to be the Quakers, a little bit more radical. Uh, up in Pennsylvania, or excuse me, up in, the, in New England, um, the Puritans definitely had this idea uh, that they were serving God, and that this, this community, the establishment of these communities, all were to be established with the idea that they were going to honor God, and they were going to be literally a, a light on a hill, a city on a hill, um, uh, showing the rest of the world what Christians can be like. And John Winthrop warned them 
in his, his letter, A Model of Christian Charity, or his speech, he said, you know, if we do this right, it's going to, be, it's going to glorify God. If we, if we do this poorly, uh, we're going to be um, a sign of, of failure uh, to the world. We're going to so, do the, the Winthrop admonitions next week. Dr. Arn, you were saying you had one thing to say, which I find difficult to believe, but what is that one thing to say? Well, it's like the hedgehog, one big thing. Um, we have to, the term enlightenment is an equivocal term. What do we mean by it? Well, in this case, the Salem Covenant is a radically enlightenment document if, in one meaning. That is, uh, they don't, they, they believe in a, in a community of religious conformity. Everybody has to act the right way. But that's because they all form a compact among themselves and agree to do it. And that means that's just like the Declaration of Independence. Authority starts with us, and we subscribe to things. And, and so that's, there's your break. That's the gulf wider than the Atlantic between the colonists and the thoughts of James I and his counselors. But, Dr. Arndt, don't they consider themselves to be loyal subjects of the king? They do, but, uh, you know... It's, uh, it's like you Catholics, right? You're all loyal subjects to the Pope, but you get to say what that means. And uh, uh, so they, uh, what they think is that, you know, how, first of all, what did James I do? What was he doing? Well, he wasn't burning people anymore, but your civil rights, your voting and your serving on juries and your being a full member of the community uh, – those were, those were conditioned on... And he suppressed my church. My church was illegal. It had to be conducted correct. in quiet solitude in hidden chapels uh, and right. denied. And the oath test was... Uh, a, we, we, we specifically banned that in 1789 because we didn't want a religious test. James I was a religious tyrant. That's right. And, but, you know, not the worst. There were earlier ones that were worse. But he was one. And so they didn't agree with that, right? And that means that they had a separate opinion about the king's authority from the king. Yes. And that means that the king's authority is subject to that kind of thing. So there's a world of difference between those things. And see, another thing is, they wanted, Ken implied this, they wanted the, the uh, religious practice to be something separate from government and not enforced by government. They wanted it enforced in a different way, right? We would just all agree. And, you know... The story of the colonial history is they, they, they came to decide that that doesn't work very well. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, heck fire. At Hillsdale College, if I tried to make everybody go to the same church, you know, I'd be burned in effigy tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yet, on the other hand, we're a very Christian community, and we get along with each other nicely. And that's partly because on Sunday we all go to church where we want to. Yes. And that's why, and Rhode Island exists because it didn't work quickly, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. It, uh, so you know, there. All of this is, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that the colonial experience in America was one of the greatest learning experiences in history because what they learned about was how effectively to operate a free government, and that had never really been done before. When we come back from break, we're going to ask uh, Dr. Calvert to uh, educate us a bit on where slavery fits into this, because, of course, it is the premise of the New York Times 1619 Project, now widely discredited and the source of mirth uh, uh, and 
and great credit and deserve criticism uh, that everyone came here in order to establish a slave society. Dr. Calvert will explain why, in fact, that is not true in the North. And that's important. Uh, before we come back, though, let me remind everyone, including Dr. Arn, Dr. Calvert, get out there and exercise even as the shutdown continues and we remain prevalently, uh, 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 we remain on the guard against the virus. You got to get your exercise, whether inside, on your Peloton, or outside, rambling over hill and dale, and that's where Relief Factor comes in. I carry in curcumin, resveratrol, and omega, the four natural supplements I take every morning in the first hour of the Hugh Hewitt Show, and then I remind you in hours two and three. Do not leave home without it. $19.95. They have been sponsors of the program forever, uh, like Hillsdale. And I am true to my, my word. I take it every morning, and I don't take any other supplement, and I encourage you to do the same. Dr. Arn's own physician has told me it's a good idea. So I would remind everyone out there, these four supplements are good for you. ReliefFactor.com, ReliefFactor.com. I will also tell you, the American Heritage Reader, from which we are working, uh, this is available to you if you um, merely go to hillsdale.edu and look for the reader. Am I right about that, Dr. Arn? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, what's its companion volume? Uh, well, the first one is uh, Western Heritage, and that's sort of world history. And, uh, and the second one is American Heritage, and that's American history. And does every Hillsdale College student read this? Both of them, yeah, of course. And in the first year? Uh, how we do that now, Ken? I think history is first and then English is second. Right, Western Heritage in the freshman year and then American Heritage in the sophomore year. And this oh, is I why, America, if you have a young son or daughter who is of college age, you want to go have them apply to Hillsdale right now. Is the application cycle closed, Dr. Arn? Uh, no, it's, uh, I think it's January 31. So uh, you're yeah. running out of time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> get, get ye to hillsdale.edu and get ye back here. We'll talk about slavery in Massachusetts when we return. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Ken Calvert. Dr. Calvert is a professor at Hillsdale College. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, sponsored by Hillsdale College each week at this time. All things Hillsdale collected at hillsdale.edu. Uh, professor Calvert, Samuel Sewell, a judge, a Puritan, involved in the Salem witch trials, which he repented of, but also the author of The Selling of Samuel. I believe you, you think it's the first abolitionist tract in America. So like all human beings, a mixed record. But what about this abolitionist tract? And why does it end up that 90% of the enslaved who come to America enter into the southern colonies and only 10%, however terrible that 10% is, go north? Yeah, I think that we, again, have to look at the fact that each of these colonies is established with a fairly um, uh, unique culture for each colony. And in the southern colonies, you have, like I said, it's, it's England transplanted. There's a very aristocratic uh, landed emphasis within Virginia, and Virginia becomes the model for much of the South. 
Now, that doesn't mean that everyone in Virginia was happy with slavery or accepted it or in the southern colonies, but it did become a fairly strong and, at points, a dominant practice in those territories. And, uh, you know, that is what uh, we have to, to tackle with projects like the, the 1619 Project and dealing with slavery in general. But to say that that is the dominant theme, even through all the southern colonies, is incorrect. But particularly with the northern colonies, it is decidedly incorrect. Now, there were those in the northern colonies who did um, have slaves, and uh, that, but that was not by any means the norm. And based upon what the Pilgrims and the Puritans had established in their governments uh, and in their society, in their, in their local towns, the idea was that a Christian man worked for himself. A Christian man did his own work. And it was based upon this idea, as we t- talked about earlier, each one of these covenants and compacts throughout it, you have we promise, we covenant. It's very similar, as Dr. Arne suggested, to we the people in our Constitution of the United States. This is the foundation of the sense of uh, the free person uh, being a citizen and not a subject. So how could Judge Sewell be so right as being an abolitionist and so wrong as to wrongfully try witches uh, uh, and condemn some to their death? Well, you know, one has to remember, you have to put in context the witch trials, because if, if you look, for instance, at the Code of Hammurabi, which goes back to the second millennium B.C., they are trying witches uh, in Mesopotamia. This is something that was fairly constant and consistent through these cultures up until uh, the time of the 1600s, the 1700s. So it's, it's not to give the Puritans a pass, but it is to help explain the context that they're not the only ones who have conducted witch trials. And one thing I like to point out to my students is that this is the only witch trial that, or set of witch trials that the Puritans had. And now, again, that doesn't give them a pass, but it does explain. And and one thing they did that many others did not do was to turn around and say, you know what, this was insane, uh, this was not Christian, uh, we did not do the right thing. And Sewell repented himself, did he not? He did. He, he repented himself, and he was one of the leaders of that repentant party and wanted to give compensation, and they did give compensation to all of the families who had lost uh, individuals or individuals who had been tortured uh, through those those trials. So again, it's not to excuse the trials, but it is to, to put into better and I think greater context the idea that uh, Sewell and others finally did come around to, I think, upholding their principles of, of Christian citizenship, of, of saying that they were they were wrong. More now, on that. Was- more on that next week with John Winthrop, but I, I am curious as to if you both can say a word about why did England not go slaver and the United States did? Uh, well, the short answer, that, that's an easy question, right? And it, it, was, uh, uh, it was brought here before it was a polity. And there they had, you know, they were exporting people, not importing them, right? Because little island, flourishing place, growing population, they overflow. So they didn't, they didn't bring them in. And they had a system of law that was unfriendly to that. In the New World, you just pulled up in a ch- ship in the beginning, in 1619. That's what happened. 
I want, can I read you C.S. Lewis on witches? Please. 300 yep. years ago, people in England were putting witches to death. Was that what you call the rule of human nature or right conduct? But surely the reason we do not execute witches today is that we do not believe that there are such things. If we did, if we really thought there were people going about who had sold themselves to the devil and received supernatural powers from him in return and were using the powers to kill their neighbors or drive them mad or bring bad weather, surely we would all agree that if anyone deserved the death penalty, then these filthy qu quizzlings did. <laughs> but there are no witches, uh, even though there are some who pretend to that. Mm. Dr. Arn and Dr. Calvert, next week to John Winthrop. And a good thing it will be, America, why are we here and why are we the way we are? That is the subject of the Hilltale Dialogue for all of 2021, and may it be a good year. Thank you, Dr. Arn. Thank you, Dr. Calvert. Hillsdale.edu for everything Hillsdale. I'll be back on Monday. Thank you, Adam and Harley, and get... When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.